Good morning. Great to be with you here this morning. It is a joy to have this time to open up God's Word. If I could invite you this morning, we're going to look at, at many, many passages on this theme of divorce and remarriage, a biblical explanation. And so this morning, by way of introduction, let's go right to the beginning, Genesis chapter 1. We need to have an understanding of the creation ordinance. We want to understand all that He has done for us and why this issue of divorce and remarriage goes back to the foundation. So, Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. So God created man in his own image. To the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So our maleness and femaleness comes from the creative hand of God. And it said, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, meaning produce children, fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. So here we have the creation ordinance. Male and female, He created them. He gave them a command to be in charge of all of His creation and that their maleness and their femaleness is uniquely attributed to them from God. Now as we go to chapter 2 of Genesis we see that here is the first marital instruction. A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Notice this. They leave the parental, they cling to one another, and then they become one flesh. They, they leave and cleave and, as we say, weave. And that weaving takes the entirety of the lifetime together. We don't arrive into a new marriage fully intact, do we? With a perfect relationship and a perfect past, we are there making a vow and a commitment in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to each other under God's grace and under his love and care and commitment. And notice here in verse 25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Marriage brings the most intimacy of unions together without shame, without controversy. This is not something that is seedy. It's not something that is awkward. It is something in the nakedness of who they are as male and female in the bonds of marriage this is something that is absolutely profound by God's instruction. Now, let's go to the last book of the Old Testament. The last book of the Old Testament to the book of Malachi. The book of Malachi. And we're going to look here at verses 14 to 16. Malachi chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. What God thinks of divorce and he says, but you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. 
So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be fatherless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Do not be faithless. Now the NASB is, is a little more forceful in this. Uh, where it says God hates divorce. And that's the right rendering of this. God hates divorce. There is a holy hatred, a righteous indignation for what He has brought together. People should not separate. If we go back to the book of Jeremiah, we see similar language in Jeremiah chapter 3 and in verse 8. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel. Now notice he's taking marital language and applying it to the nation of Israel. And she saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. This language of unfaithfulness given to Israel, given to a wayward nation, an adulterous Israel. They were worshiping other gods. They were serving others. They were faithless. And God said, I sent her away with a decree of divorce. Now notice the synergy here. God hates divorce, but because of Israel's faithless heart, their adultery, adulterated heart, he gave her a divorce certificate. A treacherous sister played the whore because she took her whoredom lightly. She polluted the land committing adultery with stone and tree. In other words, idol worship. Idol worship. That is the great covetous sin of the Old Testament is idolatry. Now, how does this play in the New Testament? What do we see here in the New Testament? Let's go together to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 to 6. And here we read of Jesus' instruction on divorce. We're going to look at this a little more carefully as the morning unfolds. But Matthew 19, verses 3 to 6. Notice he says here in verse 3, And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking. Now I want you to know the Pharisees were the caretakers of the law. They were the ones who were in charge of guarding its truth. The Pharisees, unlike the Sadducees who denied the marital vow, who denied Angelicos, who even denied the resurrection, the Pharisees were given over to marriage. So this was a question that is not surprising that has come from the Pharisees. And it says they came up to him and tested him. They were trying to trick the Lord. They were trying to take him at a moment of surprise and trip him up by asking him a loaded question. Notice what he says here. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now again, we're going to see this this morning, but it was the habit of the Jew, especially the husband, to divorce his wife for anything. And Jesus answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother. He's citing the Genesis account. 
and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So here again, we see Jesus' instruction on divorce that what God has brought together, let not man separate. Let not man separate. Now, sometimes in the sinfulness of sin, men do wicked things. In fact, even politicians. Let's go to Matthew chapter 14. And you'll see the fearlessness of John the Baptist in confronting this wicked man, this wicked politician, about his own sinfulness of sin. Notice in verse 3, For Herod had seized John and bound him, and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. What happened? He had taken his own brother's wife and was committing adultery with her. And John the Baptist was not afraid to go to him and to say that you have taken your brother's wife. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Look at what she asked for. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. And he went and had John beheaded in prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. What a dramatic time. Could you imagine if a pastor went before politicians in Washington, D.C. and confronted one in their adulterous activity? And we know it sadly happened to many and that they were beheaded for speaking the truth. John was fearless. He spoke truth to power, truth to politicians. And we see here that God even hates divorce, and he hates the adultery leading to divorce. John was not afraid to confront it. So we see the progression. One man, one woman, he created them male and female. They were to leave, cleave, and weave together for the rest of their lives. God hates divorce, but even God himself gave a writ of divorce to a wayward Israel for their adulterous living. Jesus says that in Matthew 19 that the Jewish people were adding to the Scriptures. They were about divorce for anything, any kind of reason. They were looking for another excuse to move on. Not unlike our society where people consider marriage more of an exotic official form of dating than they do a covenant. How contrary that is to the Lord and His work in their lives. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Let's go there this morning, verses 10 and 11. Here the Apostle Paul is speaking about the holiness of marriage, the reverence of marriage, and why this issue of divorce is important within the church and remarriage. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 and 11. Notice he says, to the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. I want to clarify that for you this morning. 
people have said, you see, we can't take Paul's writings as Scripture because he's even saying it's not the Lord that is saying these things, it's I. And he's separating himself out of the authority of Scripture. That's not what it means. It simply means that he's not quoting one of the Gospels where the Lord is dealing with this same issue. He is still giving divine truth in this. So to the married... I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. The Greek word there for separate, karidzo. It's used else in, elsewhere in Scripture. Two Greek words. This is one of them for divorce, to separate. This does not mean to take a break from your mate. This does not mean that you separate without divorcing. This is the same language. They are taking that separation. They are moving away. They are sending away. And he says the wife should not divorce. The wife should not separate. The wife should not tear apart from her husband. But if she does, she should remain, notice this word, unmarried. Unmarried. It means divorced. Or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Very interesting. In 1 Corinthians 7, we're going to see it a little bit later, this word unmarried is only used here in all of Scripture, and it's used in four places in this chapter. You see four groups of people in this chapter as Paul is unfolding instruction to all four groups. You see married individuals. You see unmarried, which are divorced individuals. You see the virgin or the single man or woman. And then you see widows, those that are now single because of death. So you have the married, you have the unmarried, you have the widow, and you have the virgin. So the Apostle Paul is giving a command here, even in the New Testament. I give this charge. The wife should not separate Carizo from her husband. That's the command. But now he's not contradicting himself or giving license or permission by saying, but if she does, he's simply saying, if you're going to disobey the command of the Lord, if you're going to separate from your mate, if you're going to divorce unbiblically, the inference is here, then you must have one of two states in your life. You must remain single, unmarried, once married, now unmarried. You must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to the husband. I've had women in counseling share this to me about their husbands. They said, isn't there a verse that says, I don't have to have biblical grounds, I can divorce him and that's okay. I just have to remain single or be reconciled. I want to do that verse. And I'll say, well, let's, let's keep it in context. Paul isn't giving praise or license or authority for the woman to just leave on the contrary. He's warning against it, but he's saying don't compound the sin, but remain single or be reconciled to your husband. The hope of restoration, the hope of reconciliation. And he says in the middle of this, the husband should not retaliate and divorce the wife. So here again, the issue of divorce. God hates it. We should honor marriage. There are guidelines in Scripture. Let's go back to the Old Testament again and to the book of Exodus, right to the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20 and in verse 14. Exodus chapter 20 and in verse 14. And here we are moving into the phase of one of the, one of the reasons that 
The Lord allows for divorce, but yet it is not commanded, it is permitted. It's an adulterous life. It doesn't even have to be a full-on sexual union with someone. It can be where you have given your heart and your mind and your will and your love to someone else without completing the sexual act. It's all here encompassed in this phrase. And here's the commandment. It's, it's a simple commandment. You shall not commit adultery. It's one of the great commandments. Faithfulness of life to the Lord spiritually, faithful of life to our mates physically. Here is the physical act. You shall not commit adultery. Then in Matthew chapter 5, as we see the physical act of adultery, Jesus even warns here of the emotional tie. The emotional tie. Now, these two things are not equal, but they do feed one another. And so I want to clarify this this morning as we look at some of the biblical reasons for divorce. Notice here, this is on the theme of lust in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is quoting Exodus 20:14 and Matthew 5:27. He says, "You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but now he says, "But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart." This doesn't mean that you're noticing someone who's attractive and saying, "Oh, isn't that a beautiful gal?" or whatever, but this is the lustful intent. You're only gazing at that person, at that woman, or if you're a woman gazing at the man with the purpose of playing out in your mind an adulterous affair. And as Jesus later teaches in the book of Matthew, where do all these things spring up from? It says, does not it exist from within the heart? So again, what's in the well comes up in the bucket. Out of the heart, all these lustful thoughts and all these things happen. So Jesus is saying here, obviously, it's just not the sexual act. It's the lustful thought that leads to the act that is part of the adultery. If you've already had a purposeful, lustful, and notice the word intent, you've committed adultery in the heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. In other words, don't negotiate with this. It is better that you lose one of the members than you lose the whole body thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. In other words, don't negotiate with sin. He's not talking about physical mutilation. It is better that you lose one of your members than the whole body go to hell. So what is he saying here? Some of you might be thinking, well, if I look at someone lustfully to intent, is it the same thing as the act? I've had Christian men come to me since being down here the last six years in ministry, and they've said, well, Steve, what's the big difference? I've had that lustful thought. I might as well go fulfill the act. I mean, what's the difference? There's a huge difference. You want to curb the desire while it's only desire. The two are not equal. Jesus is saying here that desirous, that lustful intent left unbridled, unguarded, untamed as it were in the heart, eventually, if it's over a period of time, it could be a month, a six months, a year, whatever it may be, if that desire is not brought to the Lordship of Christ, you will try to find an expression for that desire, and by then, your conscience will have been compromised to the point that you'll even try to justify it. That's what he's saying here. So the motive is not the same thing as carrying out the action. But it is something that is very, very powerful. 
and therefore you want to deal with it while it only is a motive. And again, notice the Lord's strong words here. Pluck out the eye. Cut off the hand. Deal with sin when it's only in that stage. So, Exodus 20, the physical. Matthew 5, the mental or the desire. Let's go to two other passages. Leviticus chapter 20 in verse 10. Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 10. Here again, the Lord is bringing this to uh, an Old Testament reality and the importance that this is not treated in a light way. Again, our, our nation, our current society has really made adultery something of a passe kind of a thing, right? I mean, people are just doing it. They think they're entitled to it. But notice here in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. He says, If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor... Both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Now we see a greater consequence. Listen, all sin is sin. All sin is sin. But not all sin is equal in its consequence and in its weight. Certain sins, as we're reading here, were punishable by death. Notice here, the adulterer and the adulteress shall be surely put to death. To death. You remember the woman that was a setup by the Pharisees in the temple to the Lord of saying, what shall we do with this woman? We caught her in the act of adultery. It was never proven. It was simply an accusation. But yet, shall we stone her? And they wanted to see if Jesus was going to go against Moses or if somehow he was going to create something that didn't honor the law of God. And you remember those famous words of our Lord, let you who are without sin cast the first stone. Jesus again goes not to the individual isolated act of that maybe of that woman, but the motive of judgment, the motive of censorousness against another when they themselves are trapped in sin. Lastly, the book of Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy chapter 22, and in verse 22. Now again, here we see the seriousness of this, and this is one of the issues surrounding divorce. And again, we're going to say it again in just a moment here, but divorce is never commanded in the Bible, but it is permitted under certain scenarios. Genesis, pardon me, Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall purge the evil from Israel. If there is a betrothed virgin, virgin meaning one who has been pledged by the family into holy union. The wedding day has not occurred yet, but the betrothal in that society was the same as joining in matrimony, and a man meets her in the city and lies with her. Then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city, and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. Notice the seriousness of this. So marriage is holy. It needs to be reverence. It's a creation ordinance. It's good, and it's under the command of God. He hates divorce, but yet he even gave Israel divorce because of their idolatry, their unfaithfulness to him. And you just cannot divorce for any reason that you want to. He's giving here a primary reason, and we're going to look at it more intently in just a moment, 
of adultery. It breaks the Ten Commandments. In, it breaks the command of our Lord in thought, in word, and in deed. And here we know, ultimately, it is punishable by death. So, here's the principle of doctrine for us here this morning. This principle of doctrine, the Word of God clearly teaches that though divorce is never commanded, it is permitted, and it's permitted only under certain circumstances. The Word of God clearly teaches that though divorce is never commanded, it is permitted under certain circumstances. So let's look this morning. There are three things I want to draw your mind and attention to, and uh, the first is biblical divorce. Biblical divorce. We looked at this just a moment ago in Matthew chapter 5. And we see here that, that command in verse 28. But could we go back there to Matthew 5 and look at verse 32? It's part of this same teaching by the Lord in the Sermon on the Mount. Here is one of the biblical reasons for divorce, and it is adultery. Matthew chapter 5 and in verse 32. He says here, and let's begin, I guess, at verse 31. It is also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. It had a legal standing. It had a legal binding to it. But he says, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, notice the exception clause here, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. Think of that. Think of the weight of that statement. If there's a dissolving of a marriage through the legal process, through a certificate of divorce, and it's not on the grounds of sexual immorality or, as we would say, adultery, it makes that one commit adultery by the very act. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Think of that for a moment. See how the perpetuation of this sin takes place. The act itself, if it's not for adultery, it's putting both parties in a situation where they're going to be vulnerable in committing the act of adultery. Also, if you see it here, it's saying that it's a certainty. It makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries that divorced woman, maybe they didn't know all the facts before they got married. And now they find out that maybe this was not a biblical divorce. It was for other things. And they're now caught in a marital bond that is adulterous. Here, these teachings of the Lord and throughout Scripture are to guard society, to guard the family, and to guard, ultimately, the purity of believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, let's go over, still in the, the Gospel of Matthew, but Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. Now, we saw those first six verses on our Lord giving instruction to the Pharisees' inquiry of saying, can you divorce for any reason? And they were wanting to see if Jesus was going to uphold their tradition. Now, when he comes here to Matthew chapter 19, in verses 7 to 9, he's very specific. Notice this in verse 7. They said to him, and they're trying to debate the Lord of glory. Can you imagine the arrogance of that? He's God incarnate. He's omniscient. And they're trying to debate him. Unbelievable. 
They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? That's what divorce means. We're just going to send her away. She's no longer welcome in this house. He said to them, and here's the reason, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. He's citing the creation ordinance. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, here again is the exception clause, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Now again, notice this, beloved. It is not something that is commanded. But even in the face of adultery, you can forgive that spouse, can't you? You can forgive that. It doesn't need to end in divorce, but the Lord has provided a reason here, and it was for the hardness of heart. Now, this is very important for us to understand this morning. The hardness of heart is not towards the one who is struggling with forgiveness. The hardness of heart is against the one who keeps on sinning against their spouse and wanting the divorce, and they're sinning with impunity. So in other words, if someone has committed adultery, and there's no forgiveness, pardon me, there's no repentance, there's no turning aside, they like the fact that, well, I have a wife, but what's the big deal or from time to time if I'm with someone else? And they treat it with such disdain and irreverence and mocking God in utter rebellion. He's saying here, it was the hardness of the heart that Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. They were callous, not only against them, but against the standard of God. And so he's saying here, it's not the one. The onus is not on the one that's maybe struggling to forgive. We understand the woundedness of that heart. But he's saying here, it's the hardness of heart that the one who is sinning against the spouse leading to divorce, and it is the unrepentance of that heart that it's a callousness, it's a hardness. Their heart of flesh, as it were, has been turned to granite, turned to stone. There's a hardness there that allowed you to divorce your wives. They're not showing grace to their wives. They're not showing, and it wasn't even for adultery. The inference is here, except for sexual immorality. They had a habit and a tradition in the Jewish tradition of divorcing their wives for a multitude of things. That means absolutely nothing. That wasn't biblical grounds. And he says, if you do this, you are the ones who are going to be committing adultery, even the way that you're putting your wife away. If it's for something less than adultery, then you will be committing, if you marry another, that same adulterous act. Jesus also says this in Mark chapter 10, and in verse 12, Mark chapter 10 and in verse 12, and it says, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Notice here, the tables are turned. Whoever divorces his wife, marries another, commits adultery against her. If she divorces her husband, marries another, he, he commits, she commits adultery. So it's both the man and the woman. We've seen it up until this point. It's just the man being the aggressor in adultery. It's the woman and the man together. Except for the cause of adultery, they're going to be committing adultery in the very act of that divorce because when they get remarried, it's going to be a perpetual adultery. So marital unfaithfulness, marital unfaithfulness. Now again, uh, these words here for sexual infidelity go way beyond simply the consummation of that, of that intimacy together. 
It can be things that are unrepented of in giving yourselves over to anything of sensuality of a sexual sort with someone else and your heart is lustfully sent upon the intent of defrauding someone else and as it were the courting, the wooing of someone for the intent of unfaithfulness within your marriage. It begins in the heart. And Jesus says, put it to death there. Don't let it get beyond that motive. Deal with that sin of, of intent and be done with it so that you can live godly lives. So adultery. This is fairly obvious, isn't it? In our day, adultery. I think it's even true, some of you military here this morning, isn't it a crime if you commit adultery in the military? Uh, as an officer, I think it is considered a trial by court. And so here, even secular society understands the importance of marital faithfulness. Is there a second reason for divorce? Yes, there is. We refer to it as abandonment, but let's look at it together. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 to 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 to 15. This is abandonment. This is abandonment. Now again, in this context... The Apostle Paul is dealing with married, unmarried, widows, and virgins. And he says in verse 12, he says, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord. Again, he's, all he's meaning is he's not quoting Jesus out of the Gospels on this. That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, this is an issue of faith, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Now, let's look at this in context again. Here the gospel is coming into the city of Corinth, and many are becoming sa saved, and they're married together, and say one of the spouses responds to the gospel, and one of the spouses does not. And they're saying, well, listen, I'm unequally yoked with a non-believer. Do I have a right to put that unbeliever away? Do I have a right to divorce now that I'm saved that non-believer? No, you do not. You stay faithful. You live with that non-believer. If they consent to live with you and the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it can separate families, no question. But he says here, if that brother's has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, she sh he should not divorce her. And that's the same thing. If you have an unsaved wife or an unsaved husband and you're recently saved or you're now a Christian, they haven't responded to the call of Christ yet, that is not a biblical reason for divorce. But what is? In this context, when does the unbeliever caused by their own actions a right for a brother and sister to not to not have to live in that union. Here it is. Look with me at verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, separates, that's that same word, corizo, separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? You can't tie them to a chair and say, you're going to love me, you're going to honor me, you're going to continue on in this marriage. No, if the unbelieving spouse wants to depart, it's a command here in the Greek. This is very tough language to, for us to understand. But he says, 
in such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. Notice that little phrase in the ESV here. Let it be so. It's a command. If the non-believer wants to depart, you continue on in your life with the Lord Jesus Christ, but you are to release that unbeliever in your home. They have the right to leave. They have the right to leave. And Paul says here that brother or sister in that context is not enslaved. Translation, they are not bound by the covenant of marriage if the unbeliever wants to depart. That marital bond is broken. God has provided. Just like in adultery, as we read earlier in Leviticus 20.10, that adultery was a sin that was to be uh, dealt with by stoning. The nation had to be pure. But here in the New Testament, if someone commits adultery against a spouse, it's not that that person has been somehow uh, obfuscated outside the realm of grace, right? That they are no longer stoned. And at the same time, though, in adulterous living, you can give forgiveness. You can give and show grace in that way. But if your heart and life can't can't take that emotional strain and the process of what infidelity and marital unfaithfulness does to the innocent party. Again, divorce is not commanded. It is permitted. You may divorce your spouse. Why? Because in the old covenant, adultery is punishable by death. In the new covenant, it can be the death of the marriage if the ones sinned against cannot bring themselves to a place of continuing on in the intimacy in the fidelity of marriage. Okay? That's a very important distinction here. So, the abandonment comes from a non-believer wanting to leave. A non-believer wanting to leave. Now, how do you know who the non-believer is? Is it someone that just says, I don't believe in the Gospel? Is it someone who says, honey, you can go to church. I choose not to. I know your faith in Jesus is important. It's not to me. That's a fairly clear admonition there. But one of the ways that we know, one of the signs that we know a true believer from a false believer is repentance, right? You fall down seven times, you get up how many times? Seven. There's the life of a Christian. It can be one steps up, two steps back. We all sin in thought, word, or deed every day. But we know that the true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter what the sin may be, will repent. We read of it this morning. David read for us in Psalm 51, this beautiful psalm of confession and forgiveness and repentance by David when he was confronted by Nathan the prophet after his sin with Bathsheba. David was adulterous, but yet when confronted in his sin, he immediately broke, forgiveness was given, and here he confessed and repented of that sin. It's a sign that David truly was a man after God's own heart, though his heart strayed for a season. He even had some of his hitmen, as you know, take Bathsheba's husband and mask it in the heat of battle. He was very clever in how he tried to carry out his lustful, desirous whims. So adultery is a sure sign that the marital bond could be broken, but abandonment here means that the unbeliever will go. Now listen, this could be someone. The, not, the non-believer here in this context could be someone within the church 
that has lived their life. They claim to know Jesus, but they are not repentant. They are living in unrepentant sin. And because of that, we don't know if that individual is truly saved or not saved. But here, when Jesus says at the end of Matthew 18, if someone fails to repent of their sin, and it goes to a step four, you know, you go to that person privately, then you take two or three witnesses, and then you bring it before the church, and then it says this final step is to put them out of the church. And putting them out of the church simply means to treat them as a non-believer. It doesn't mean to declare them a non-believer, but it means to treat them as a non-believer because we don't know the hearts of individuals no matter what the sin may be. So you have a brother or a sister in Christ that needs to be brought to a place of repentance and whatever that sin is, they're unrepentant and therefore over time they take on the characteristic of a non-believer. And if that non-believer wants to depart, Paul says, let it be so. We only know that person is truly saved if by one thing, they turn from that sin and they come back because a Christian will never stay ultimately in the far country, will they? A Christian will come back to a place of repentance in Jesus Christ. So here, this non-believer in 1 Corinthians 7 has never repented of his or her sin and they're content to live in the far country without repentance. They're practicing that sin and therefore they finally depart from the one who has stayed in the marriage and still confesses Christ as Lord. They're not happy to, to, to live in unrepentance. And so here, Paul says, if the unbelieving partner separates, corizo, divorces, let it be so. Let it be so. And so the only way that we know if someone is truly saved is will they live in the fruitfulness and the joy of repentance. It's obedience in Christ, isn't it? That's how we know. Now lastly, another biblical reason for divorce, and this is really under the theme of abandonment, but it's the third A in our list here. Adultery, abandonment, and abuse. Abuse. Can you go with me to 1 Peter chapter 3? 1 Peter chapter 3. This is an amazing section of Scripture. Again, we covered it a few weeks ago in dealing with the marital roles. 1 Peter chapter 3, this is a command given to the husband. Husband, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you in the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. The weaker vessel there does not mean weaker intellectually, weaker emotionally, weaker spiritually. It does pertain to their physical makeup. Most women are not as strong as most men. I know there are some that are. If you've ever seen a female body builder, boy, they're scary, aren't they? Um, I've seen them. They look, they look like they could just beat up most of the guys I know. And uh, But most of the time, women are soft. They're and, and aren't we glad they are? Uh, they're feminine, and they're a weaker vessel. What Peter is saying here, men, don't physically abuse your wives. Honor the weakness of their vessel. Don't use your male strength to somehow intimidate or abuse or beat up in any way, shape, or form that woman. 
the, the woman is not to endure an abusive situation. I know there's been such bad teaching on this throughout the modern day era of the church where some pastors will say, if you're a woman and your husband is using you as a punching bag, it's okay. Stay in that relationship. Stay in that marriage. Trust that God will protect you and then move on from there. That is bad, bad counsel. Notice this in Colossians 3.18. A woman is to be submissive. That means adapt and honor and respect her husbands. But as Paul says here in verse 18, that is only to happen as is fitting in the Lord. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. The husband cannot ask the wife to do anything immoral, unethical, or illegal. And if they do, the wife is not to honor the husband in that, but to honor the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what that phrase means. As is fitting in the Lord. Wives, submit to your husbands. Honor your husbands. Respect them. But as is only fitting in the Lord. Brothers, it is not fitting in the Lord that any man should physically abuse a woman should be hitting that woman, should be physically grounding to powder that woman. That's a wrong scenario here. And we saw it last week just in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 24. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 24. The Apostle Paul says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. So again, the object is Christ, ultimately not the husband. For the husband is the head of his wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body is head of himself as Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, that's our role before the Lord. So wives should submit in everything. It means not in every little instance, but it means in all areas of life to their husbands. Again, any home with two heads and no heart is a monstrosity. Wives, you are the heart of the home. Live in such a way that it honors Jesus Christ as the heart of that home. Honor your husbands. And do so as is fitting in the Lord. Adultery, marital and faithfulness. Abandonment, as a matter of faith and repentance, the non-believer, even if they confess Christ, departs for a life that is lascivious and is not consistent with the Lord, and they'd rather choose that life than the life of faith with her husband. Abandonment. Or with the, the husband and the wife altering roles there. And abuse. Abuse. By the way, the statistics today are 50-50. This was interesting, doing some study on this for today. Do you realize, and I was under this impression, I thought it was a greater percentage that the men were abusing physically their spouses. Do you know that it's equal now that the women abuse the men physically as much as the, the man abuses the woman? It is now equal. And so wives, you are not to physically abuse your husband thinking I'll hit him and they can't hit me back. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to abuse that. That is not the role. You are to honor. You are to love. You are to care for. You are to respect and submit to the husband, not abuse the husband. And the husband, we are not to abuse the wife physically. This is not meant to be these kinds of things. If you are living in a perpetual state of those issues, whether it's adultery, abandonment, or abuse, Scripture allows for a biblical divorce a biblical divorce. By the way, a side component to the abuse issue, it's against the law, and a Christian is to honor the, the rule of law in society. And so not only is it against 
how Scripture commands the husband and the wife to respond to each other, it's against the rule of law. And that should not be tolerated in any way, shape, or form. So, since divorce is only a concession to man's sin and not part of God's original plan for marriage, all believers should hate divorce as God does. Amen? That's our, that's our duty. We want to hate it as God does, but we know due to the hardness of heart, even though it wasn't this way from the beginning, under abandonment, abuse, or adultery, that that family can, can dissolve that marriage. Now, I want you to know it's painful to go through a divorce, isn't it? It's very, very painful. That little word, charizo, it literally means the tearing of the flesh. To tear the flesh. Because as we read in Genesis, the husband and the wife come together and now they're one. They're, there's a one union in God. And to make that one union in that family now two, you have to literally rip them apart. And it's a ripping spiritually. It's a tearing physically. A tearing emotionally. You, you just separate. It, there's a division that occurs. And so even under biblically condoned areas, it's painful, brothers and sisters. It is a painful thing to do and should not be treated lightly. Sadly, in our day, it takes two to make a marriage. But by our rule of law, and it began with Ronald Reagan, he should have repented of this, it only takes one today to make a divorce. And we need to be guarding against that. So divorce is only a concession to man's sin. It's not part of God's original plan for marriage. Therefore, believers should hate it. Now, the question is this. If you have a biblical divorce, if you've been divorced, can you become remarried? Some people will think if you've gone through a divorce that it should never be done anyway. But if you've gone through a divorce, there's no hope of remarriage ever. That is not scriptural. Let's go here together, number two this morning, biblical remarriage. And this is probably as far as we'll get here this morning. Biblical remarriage. Under two scenarios, after death and after divorce. Go with me, please, to Romans chapter 7 and verses 1 to 4. You say, Steve, isn't this a no-brainer that it, certainly if someone's spouse has died, you can remarry? Yes, but you know, some people teach that even as a widow, you should never be able to remarry, and that goes against the command of Scripture. Paul says, do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Similar language to 1 Corinthians 7. The non-believer wants to go. You are no longer under that covenant. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. And so when we see this here, this is the image again of Christ and the church and the marital union between the husband and the wife. And so if the husband dies, she's free from the law. She is free from the law. And if she marries another, again, remarriage, she's not an adulteress. This is good and right and approved by God to do so. 1 Corinthians 7.39, when Paul says that if you want to remarry, he commands that spouse, marry only in the Lord. No such thing as missionary dating. 
right? I know a lot of people that think, I'm, I'm really attracted to this non-believer. I want to somehow go and I, I can be used to transform their lives. Some people even enter into the bond of marriage uh, under that guise. But here Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, you can remarry, but marry only in the Lord. Again, marry an, uh, a Christian. My kids are asking me, Dad, is it wrong if I wanted to marry someone of a different race? Well, biblically, no, there's nothing wrong with that. The only prerequisite is marry in the Lord. Uh, that's the primary thing. That man you want to marry, that woman you want to marry, do they love Jesus Christ? Will they serve him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength? Will they honor you and care for you as the Bible says a husband and wife should? Marry only in the Lord. What about this issue when it comes to widows in particular? Because this is a real issue uh, in many churches, and it's something that I think we should look at here just briefly. 1 Timothy 5, verses 9 to 16. 1 Timothy 5, verses 9 to 16. Here the widow is the one that had a spouse. That spouse has died. And so what should that widow do? This is, if you've never read this, I think this will be interesting for you this morning. Paul says, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband. So he's talking about the roles of the church, of who should be really cared for as a widow. And he says, and having a good reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows. What does it mean again? To simply say that young woman who's lost her husband should not be treated for or cared for by the church as a widow. For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. This happens with younger gals who have had a spouse die. And so he says, I would have the younger widows marry. What's the solution? Marry. If you're a younger widow, marry. Uh, I have a niece who uh, got married a, a few years back, and she had uh, some kids, and her husband who was working in a youth ministry. Uh, he died of an aneurysm, and it was tragic. As a young gal, she was left as a widow. A few years later, she married a young man in the church. She honored this. And so it was here, the younger women to marry, bear children, manage their households, give the adversary. Notice this. This could be a point of attack for Satan himself. Give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. We cared for Miss Joyce before she went home to be with the Lord two and a half, well, a little over two years ago, June, and she was in her 80s. We cared for her for a number of years here. She was a widow. She met these qualifications, and we wanted to help her. We wanted to care for her, provide for some of her needs, and this is it. When he says, let the church not be burdened, it means with widows that maybe have relatives that could care for them, then the church should not be burdened. You can use those funds to care for others within the church that really need the help. 
Now, 1 Corinthians, again, we've been in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 quite a bit. Let's go back there this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and again verses 8 to 9. 8 to 9. Now again, remember Paul's mentioning four groups of people here, and he gives a verse as a prerequisite for widows and divorcees on how they are to respond to the issue of remarriage. And look at this. This is a, a very interesting thing here. He says to the unmarried and the widows. Again, the unmarried were once married. You don't go up to somebody and say, are you single? And they'll say, yes, I'm unmarried. No, they'll just say yes. But if someone says, are you married? They'll say, I was, but I'm divorced or I'm unmarried. This means, again, four times in this chapter, the only place that the unmarried are mentioned in the New Testament. And he says, so to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Now, Paul is putting himself in the category there of either a widow or the unmarried. What most believe is that Paul went through a divorce and was unmarried because of the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, and his wife ended up leaving, abandoning him. He's putting himself in that context of the unmarried or the widowed, and there's no place in Scripture wherever he is saying that he was a widower. Now, if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. That's the only prerequisite there for some. If you were once married, and you know what it is to be involved in sexual fidelity with your spouse, you have kids, you're enjoying that, or you were once married, now your husband or your wife has died, you know what it is to enjoy that with your spouse. So he says, if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. This is not referring to a 20-year-old whose hormones are raging. This is referring to the one who has been divorced, who has been widowed. And if they're burning with passion and they cannot control that, it's better for them to marry. I hope that gives some clarification. So after death, Death breaks the bond. Death breaks the covenant. And you are free to marry someone. And as Paul said in Romans 7, you are not committing adultery if you do. If you are a widow within the church, if you're older than 60 years old, you can remarry, but it's just that Paul's saying you shouldn't be cared for by the church. Maybe that should be for your family or for your husband now. Now, what about after divorce? This is really where we live in such a big way. Let's go together there to Mark chapter 10 and again verse 12. Mark chapter 10 and verse 12. And it says, And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now it sounds like on the reading of this that somebody who was married and has committed adultery could never get married. In fact, the very act itself would be adulterous. And that's not what the Lord is speaking of here. He is speaking about if they have separated, if they have divorced except for marital infidelity or for the issues of abandonment or abuse that we saw in other parts of Scripture, if they have a non-biblical reason for the divorce, they're just unhappy. In our day, and here's what President Reagan really I believe was at fault had. He called it no-fault divorce. We call it irreconcilable differences. Listen, doesn't our Lord specialize in irreconcilable differences? 
You know, people will see the, the same soup can in a different way. They may look at it here. They may look at it here. The husband and the wife, they see things differently. The kids may, you know, uh, here at the church, the, the reason that we want to have a unanimity of eldership and deacons is that we all see the soup can a little bit differently and there's safety in many counselors. Well, here it's the same thing within marriage. One sees it this way. One sees it this way. One recalls a story this way. Another recalls it this way. And so Paul is saying here, irreconcilable differences, I'm just tired, we're not getting along, that's not a biblical reason for divorce. So if you have a biblical divorce, you can have a biblical remarriage. Again, 1 Corinthians 7.15, we've already seen it. If the non-believer abandons you and they go, you are free. You are no longer under the bond or the covenant of marriage. Let's end there and we'll pick this up next week because there's a very important principle uh, here that that I want to address next week. It will take some time. Biblical remarriage to a previous spouse. Is this condoned in Scripture? And we're going to look at some very weighty and intricate texts next week because it is an issue that faces a lot of people in our society. And I hope that the Word of God will bring clarity to your hearts and minds on this. Let's pray, beloved, as we close. Father God, thank you for the hope of the gospel. Lord, these are weighty issues. You never desire homes to be dissolved, families to be dissolved, the tearing of the union between a man and a woman in in any situation, but you do allow because we're frail, we're human, we're people overcome with all matters of emotion and and weights of sin and, and struggles, Lord, in our individual lives. And so whether it's adultery, whether it's abandonment, whether it's abuse. Lord, you give under certain scenarios, um, and again, that's never commanded, but it is permitted. If there's an ongoing pattern, if there is repentance, we are commanded to forgive, and that's always the better way. It's a way to put grace on display. No one has to get divorced because their spouse has been abusive or abandoned or, or adulterous. But yet, Lord, you know the frailty of our own hearts. And so we would ask this morning that if uh, other families have been through this, if their hearts have been wayward, if their lives have been lived in such a way that they're, they're doubting, Lord, the validity of their own families and uh, their children, their spouse, the male or the female, the husband or the wife, that, Lord, we know that because we've been forgiven a great debt, we may also forgive and so, therefore, Lord, our, our hope is in you. I, I thank you for every person that's here this morning. I don't know all the stories of these dear people. But, Lord, we know that where there's sin, once abounded, grace can superabound. And so, Father, we thank you that you accept us and take us right where we are. That if someone has gone through this morning, Lord, an unbiblical divorce and even remarried out of spite and has gone through an unbiblical remarriage, we know that there's forgiveness right there, right now and that they can live as an example of the grace of Christ in their current marriage, in their current state. This is not the end of the line for anyone. So, Lord, thank you for Scripture. Thank you for the clear teaching of these multiplicity of passages. And, Father, as we love to sing here in Christ alone, this is the, this is the hope of where we must live, that our work and our love is in Jesus alone. It's not in each other. It's not in the faith of our kids or faith in our spouses or faith even in our churches 
It's the faith that we should have in Jesus Christ, in Christ alone. You're our hope in times of fear. You're the permanency in times of doubt. And so, Father, as we sing this to you, use it, minister it to our lives this morning so that we may love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. For it's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray and all God's people said, Amen.